You're listening to the Christ Church Toronto podcast, a recording of the Sunday sermons from Christ Church Toronto. Christ Church Toronto is a new church in Toronto's East End that seeks to practice the ancient Christian faith today. We would love for you to join us in the future, but until then, please turn your attention to the scripture reading. 1 Peter 4, 1-11. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. 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 Thanks, Sam. Would you bow your heads and pray with me before we uh, spend some time reflecting on this passage? Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you that you have given to us your word, and we pray now this morning that Jesus Christ, your Son, our Savior and our only hope, would become the most clear and beautiful, most captivating vision of our mind, that we might be caught up with all the saints around the world and with your angels in giving worship to Jesus even this morning. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. I don't know if anyone else has seen uh, this film, Goodbye Lenin. It's a couple years old. Uh, It was released a couple years ago. It's based out of East Berlin, in 1989, and it centers on one woman named uh, Christian. She is a devout, devout communist, and she's very committed to the DDR, or the German Democratic Republic's cause, the communist cause of uh, her day. And in the film, she falls into a coma, and as uh, she falls into this coma, uh, she's lying in the hospital uh, in this comatose state, And a few days after this happens, the communist government collapses, the wall falls down, and the process of of the reunification of Germany begins to take place. And she misses it all because she's in this coma. And she actually ends up being in the coma for some eight months. And as she starts to come out of the coma, the doctors warn her son that if she experiences any sort of shock, there's a good chance she'll have another heart attack and it could kill her. And so, as I don't know if this is actually possible medically, but so as the, the film goes, uh, her son, in an act of love and sort of an act of simple love, decides that he's going to do everything he can 
to, at least as she comes out of this coma, give a presentation to his mother that she's still living in the GDR, that she's still living in the communist time. And so he spends all of his time gathering up old clothes from the German Democratic Republic. He puts back their old furniture. Uh, every time he goes to the grocery store and gets groceries, he repackages them in the former sort of communist packaging. Uh, he even goes so far as to create sort of fake newscasts and gets his neighbors involved in the story to try to ease his mom into this new world that has come. And um, as you can guess, he's unsuccessful. You know, the second the wall falls, it's like Coca-Cola already had a marketing uh, budget and signs are draped everywhere and the world has changed rapidly. Uh, I absolutely love the film, in part because my wife Kim and I lived in uh, Leipzig, Germany for a little bit, in the former eastern part, and it was interesting for us to hear um, people, especially elderly people, reminisce with some sadness about the way life used to be in the GDR. And But what I think is interesting about the film and the picture that I think it gives to us, which is helpful to what Peter's trying to communicate with us today, is that it is very difficult to live in a world when you've experienced such incredibly rapid change. You know, in such a short period of time, uh, the people living in Eastern Germany went from uh, having sort of one brand, for example, of soda, of pop, to having a whole flood of Western brands sort of overnight take over their grocery shelves. Uh, this rapid change is very, very, very difficult to live with. And Peter is writing to a group of very young Christians who in some senses have experienced something like this wall falling down in their life. Uh, they've experienced some toppling of prevailing sort of cultural narratives and cultural thought in their mind. They've converted, and it's been somewhat rapid, and they didn't know what was coming, and they didn't have a lot of examples that they were following after. It seems as though this was very, very quick. It wasn't as though, you know, the, the, uh, their conversion to Jesus Christ sort of meant a t political overthrow. They're still residing in the same place they resided prior to accepting Christ. They still have the same uh, king and emperor that they had prior to accepting Christ. However, what has changed now is they have a new allegiance that overshadows all other allegiances. They're loyal to Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ has come and brought about a very real and tangible salvation for them, and in a very real way. The powers of sin that had, had kept them in bondage which had hindered them and kept them in patterns of destruction for years and years and years. These, these powers, these bonds have been snapped. They've been broken. And they're now uh, proceeding into a new life. But this has all happened such in such rapid pace and rapid succession. And the Apostle Peter knows that there's a temptation, especially as the freshness of the experience of converting to Christ uh, especially in the face of suffering, there's a real temptation that comes to remember longingly the way things used to be. And maybe in a strange way to believe that you can somehow live in the new world, this world loyal to Christ, while also dabbling in and continuing on old patterns that you took with you into this new world. And so this is, the, this is what the Apostle Peter is writing to. This is the crowd he's writing to. And I, I can't help but think that this is so, so important for us as a church community that every week we've, we've sort of seen these paradigms play out over and over again. But we live in a world in which we used to feel very at home. You know, from this auditorium, I assure you, the scriptures were read and the Lord's Prayer was said to students not that long ago, right here. There used to be singing, I'm sure, of Christian hymns at the public school right here. And now that would be considered unheard of. That would, that would result in people being fired and, 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 and serious consequences. 
Something has changed so rapidly in the sense of, of our culture pushing away from sort of a Judeo-Christian heritage that we now find ourselves stuck wondering how we straddle these two worlds. We have this loyalty to Christ. We live in a world where there used to be some perceived cultural loyalty, and this is changing, and it's brought about persecution. And we're trying to figure out how we now continue to interact with those coworkers, which we used to be able to keep pace with at the bar. How do we interact with those family members who want to participate in certain ceremonies? What do we do as we move forward? I've found Peter's wisdom to be incredibly relevant for the times we live in today. And in this particular passage, Peter's going to say, listen, there's no getting around it. He's been saying this every week. You will suffer. You're going to suffer. But here's the good news. The one who brought you salvation suffered, and after his suffering, he, re- he resurrected from the dead, and, and this was part of his story of glory. And if, if he is your most loyal and highest, if he's the one to whom you find all your hope, if he's the one to whom you say he, his life pictures the true story of the world, well, then that means your suffering, too, is only stepping stones to glory. That's all it is. And so you can face the suffering that's ahead of you. And in our particular passage, Peter is going to say, here is how you're going to continue to live out this new identity you have in Christ, even if it means facing sufferings. Here's how you're going to continually dip into the privileges you have in Christ in the face of a world that is telling you to lack your loyal, to push back your loyalty, to tone things down. He's going to say you're going to have to always be armed Then he's going to say you need to take on a future focus. And finally, you're going to need to learn to be others-oriented. So always armed, future-focused, others-oriented. So 1 Peter says to the church that they are to always be armed. Now, I would never describe it this way if I was in the U.S. for obvious reasons. (laughs) Always be armed. Where do I see this? Admittedly, this is a somewhat tricky passage, and if you're visiting our church, these past couple of weeks, Peter has said some things that are tough, and the commentaries get really thick as to uh, what exactly is going on. But if you read what's going on here, some slowness and some study, I think we can make sense of what Peter's saying. Remember Peter's argument, especially we looked at it last week. If you have your Bible open, 1 Peter 3:18 is a very critical verse to understanding the argument he's making. Peter said, Christ suffered in the flesh for sin to bring us to God. Last week we talked about this. Christ's suffering brought about something that we described as a settlement. Uh, Our Lord dealt with sin in his flesh so that we could be brought into the presence of our creator. That the one who made us, that we had found ourselves in tension with and alienated from, that a settlement was made and there was now uh, an, an ability for us to be reconciled, brought together with our heavenly father. Verse 1 picks up this thought, and Peter says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourself with the same way of thinking. Peter's saying, arm yourself with the mindset, the, the mental resolve that Jesus had. Have the mental disposition of Jesus Christ, the one who is your hope. What was his disposition? Well, we might say at the very least, Jesus' disposition was this steady and sure confidence that the Lord will deliver and he will judge justly. Maybe another way of saying this is Jesus' steady disposition is that at any one individual moment, it is always better to suffer in the flesh than to, avoid, than to sin and avoid suffering. He would say this another way. It is never a good idea to sin 
for the sake of avoiding suffering. That was, never, that was never a way that this worked out well for Jesus. This is the state of mind, the mindset that you must arm yourself with, Church of Jesus Christ, if you're going to figure out how to navigate this new world we find ourselves in, with stories coming at us, challenges coming at us from every which way. Peter goes on, and this is where it gets somewhat tricky, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sinning, or has ceased from sin. There's a variety of ways you could translate this passage. It could be that the one, Jesus, who suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. That could be what Peter is referring to. But it seems to me that Peter's overall point is this, that when you refuse to sin and choose rather to suffer for the sake of Christ, when your loyalty to Jesus is of higher importance to you than your personal comfort and you're willing to embrace suffering, when that happens, it becomes obvious to you that sin's power has been broken in your life. It doesn't have the same stronghold. Taking a costly stand to suffer for doing good shows the world that you are done with this old order, this old way of thinking, that our life is all about our personal comfort and safety and pleasure. Obedience in the face of sinning, even when it brings suffering, produces a greater and deeper obedience. The first time you say, no, I can't participate in going out with you to that place is incredibly hard. You sweat bullets. You're not sure if you can do it. The second, third, fourth time, it becomes incredibly easy, and you start to realize sin has lost its full grip on you that it once had. It's lost its power. Peter goes on in verse 3 to say, you've spent plenty of time doing what the Gentiles did. He then goes on to describe the average frat party. You know, all these, these sins, these vices, which were good things that the Lord had given, and they have now been distorted and misused. They have been abusing and misusing the good gifts of God through all these sort of manifestations of lacking self-control, all these uh, manifestations of abusing the good things that God has given to them, using them inappropriately. And Peter then says, you experience suffering in large part at this point in the history of the church, not unlike us, you experience suffering because you just won't participate in these things. These, these lack of self-control, uh, these abusing the good things God has given to you, you just won't participate in, and therefore you suffer. But Peter is saying, stay armed. Stay armed. It is always better to suffer than to sin. Always. A hundred percent. The story of Christ is what you arm yourself with, and this is how you know this to be true. Don't be naive. Listen, um, while I was fundraising for uh, Christ Church Toronto, we visited another church in the south of the U.S., deep in the south. Some very generous people who really pray for our church all the time, and in many ways, they feel so deeply like our sisters and brothers. And we went to church, and we ended up sitting next to an individual who I knew, who was our connection to the church, and uh, he said, actually, I need to sit on the aisle. And I made a joke and kind of nudged him. He was a deacon at the church, and I said, oh, is it because you're you know, you're armed. You've got to stay in the aisle. And he said, yeah, yeah, that's why I have to stay in the aisle. I thought, what in the world? He had to stay armed. I, after dinner, at lunch after the case, I asked this individual, you know, Secret Service trained, church of maybe 2,000 people, why in the world would you bring a gun to church? You're a deacon. And he said, ah, <laughs> you have to stay armed, not so much to protect the church from an intruder, although maybe that might be necessary. He says, in our part of the world, 
I have to go uh, four times a year in front of the whole congregation and tell them that I am armed so that they don't feel temptation to bring their guns into the church and it turns into a mass shootout should there be a loud noise. (laughs) He always has to stay armed, and his presence, everyone knows he was a former Secret Service agent, provides a comfort that someone in the church is armed. I have no idea why Americans are so obsessed. I mean, I am one. I grew up in the States, and I still can't fully... I've been here too long. I've been brainwashed. I don't know. But... I don't understand uh, the need to stay armed and how this provides some kind of safety and security and some sort of confidence. But whatever that is in the mindset of the average, uh, you know, sort of American, especially the further south you go, Peter is saying there has to be some kind of mental arming that must take place in the church. And it must be, it it will look to some as though you're paranoid by focusing and, and attempting to be mentally armed regularly. It will look as though, you know, you're a bit crazy. Why do you need to all the time read the scriptures, memorize scriptures? Why do you need to take so much time to think about what you're doing? But Peter is saying you must always stay armed. There's no way to move forward. You must have the mindset of Christ. It's always better to suffer than sin. The Lord will deliver. The Lord will judge fairly. How are we going to stay armed? We must always remind ourselves, constantly remind ourselves of this true story of the world, that our Creator did not abandon Jesus Christ. And in fact, our Creator saw the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, one who had flesh like ours, and because of His obedience, because of His virtuous works, because of His refusal to sin in the face of suffering, the power of sin was snapped. And now anyone who has loyalty to him, who's in relation to him, who's bonded to him, we now know how the ending will take place. We're secure, we're safe, but we must arm ourselves that as surely as he experienced suffering, so also will we. But after suffering will come our glory as well. Never forget it. Never forget it. When you leave the house, ask yourself, am I armed? Maybe be careful how you say it publicly. (laughs) Am I ready for what I'm about to face? Do I know this Christ? Am I armed? He doesn't say, though, just be armed always. He also says, be future-focused. We're picking up sort of uh, uh, Peter's thought, but Peter makes this comment that there's floods of debauchery that go in our world, and I don't think I have to, I don't think I have to describe to you the debauchery in the ancient Near East. All I got to say is they could keep up with a lot of what's going on in our world. They weren't so primitive uh, that they didn't know the sins that we know. They know actually, they knew them actually quite well. Uh, they had holidays in which you could even virtuously participate in things like orgies and, and things like mass drunken parties. And uh, it, it, it was different than our world in the sense that our world still has some measure of shame about these things where they have to be talked about quietly in hushed tones. In their world, there were certain days of the year that you could actually do this publicly and virtuously and you'd expect the civic leaders to participate. And Peter's saying, your loyalty to Christ now means you're not going to do these things which is going to get people to speak ill of you, and they are going to malign you. But Peter says you must never forget this, that you and them and everyone that you lay eyes on will one day give an account to the one who judges the living and the dead. Peter's point is this. Their mistreatment of you and their mocking of you, it won't be the last chapter. There's still more pages to turn, and don't ever lose that perspective. You must be future-focused. He goes on to say something that seems somewhat peculiar in verse 6. He says, for this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they may live in the spirit the way God does. 
What is Peter saying in verse 6? It's a complicated verse, admittedly, but it seems as though it's relatively clear uh, after, after thinking about it a bit longer. What Peter's trying to say is this. In the ancient Near East, there wasn't a, a, a deep theology of, about anything related to accountability after death. The prevailing sort of cultural wisdom was you lived your life and your body died. And there might be some sort of afterlife that your soul or spirit participates in, but any sort of accountability towards that end wasn't as common in this particular culture. And so Peter's point is this, that there still will be uh, some measure of accountability even after our bodies are in the morgue. So the Christian dies who accepts the gospel, believes and trusts in Jesus Christ, and the non-Christian dies, and when they're in the morgue and they pull out the you know, they pull out the coolers and they, the bodies are there. They don't look any different. It doesn't seem as though Christ made any impact in their life. So what's the point of preaching to these people who are dead? Maybe saying they, they, they may have made the right decision to follow Christ had he returned, but he chose not to return in their life, so now they're dead. What was the point? They now move on. Peter's saying this is still very, this is, there's still very much a future that awaits them. They may look the same now, but they have a life in God's spirit and they have a future judgment that is to come where they will receive life unending. And this is why it is worth it to continue to follow Christ. But you have to have this future orientation. Peter goes on in verse 7. He basically says that, uh, that be self-controlled and sober-minded for the end of all things is at hand. Peter's point is this. Not so much, there would be a lot to be said about the fact that um, there's a sort of a myth floating around that the early church just assumed Jesus was going to return in their lifetime, and when he didn't, uh, the whole movement became a colossal failure. That's not completely true. It seems as though they were living as though Jesus could return, but what Peter is trying to say, actually, is that all that's left to do, sort of the next chapter, all that's left on the timeline is for Jesus to come in a final judgment. That's sort of what, what, what we're looking for next. And so if that is the case, then the end is near. This is, this is all that's left, is this final judgment that is to come. So you need to have this future focus. You need to be sober-minded about this. Peter is saying, if you want to live out in your, your loyalty to Christ well, this new identity in Christ, if you want to learn to suffer well, you must always keep a future focus. This was incredibly offensive to say that God will indeed judge the living and the dead on the last day in the first century as it is today. But Peter's point is that there is no ability to navigate suffering, even deep and painful suffering, to be wronged greatly without reminding yourself that the Lord one day will settle all accounts. Those who mistreat you won't get away with it forever. Peter's point maybe would be similar to this. I don't know the first thing about investing money in the stock market, but I do know one thing. When the market is like it is right now, everyone tells me, don't look at your retirement account. <laughs> Just ignore it. You're, you're young enough this is, in the future, you can worry about it, but the best thing you can do right now is not drive yourself crazy. Just, just ignore it. The money's there. It's gone. Focus on the future. One day, you will eventually be able to take this money out, and hopefully, it'll be worth more than it currently is, worth something, hopefully. Peter's saying something similar to you in the face of suffering, and no one's laughing. Everyone's depressed now. Listen, I don't know the first thing about finances. It might get worse, but my illustration is this. That's not what people tell me who are in the know. And my point is this, in the face of suffering, you feel like this is everything. You feel like my portfolio has tanked, I've lost my job, I've lost my status, everything that was comforting to me, that gave me the good life is gone. That's how it feels in the face of suffering. And Peter's being that investment advisor saying, I know it feels that way. 
I know it feels that way. But it's, you've got to look towards the future. These things correct. The Lord will settle the accounts. We know the ending because we saw what he did in Christ. We know what he's going to do for the world. The wicked will not win. They will not prevail. You have made a real break with sin. You have, you have, have, have turned and followed after Christ. And all that is left as we live in this, this period of time is that final judgment. Where what you know now to be true in your hearts and minds as you trust and believe in Christ will be true to all eyes and all ears. This future judgment, this final chapter, is all that waits. Now listen, Peter then says, how, as we sort of begin with the end in mind, maybe as Stephen Covey says, maybe that's another way of saying this, as we think of this future, uh, this future focus uh, as we walk out our faith, Peter actually makes an interesting implication. He says, if you have this proper future, that the Lord's going to judge all things, that the Lord will indeed call each and every one of you to account by name. You will stand before him without excuse, and he will render a judgment on you. And those who, those who persecute Christians, those who make life miserable for Christians, they will receive a judgment. If you have that future mindset in, how do, what, what will that do to your life? Well, what does Peter say? It seems out of place. And I must admit, as I thought about it, it seemed out of place, but it makes tons of sense. He says, if you can keep this future focus as part of your walk with Christ... This will impact not your courage, although I think it will. It's not what Peter highlights. It will impact your, you know, your sort of confidence. I don't know, but what he highlights is this. He says it will impact your prayers. You will begin to live a more self-controlled life, which will then influence and impact your prayers. As you're suffering, Peter says, you will remember this final judgment and maybe even as these people uh, condemn you and as they mistreat you, you will not be wrapped up in some kind of morbid fatalism, but you will intercede to our Lord, saying, Lord, make your name known even to these people who now act as my enemies. To these people who mock me, Lord, I don't, love the, I don't like the idea of them standing before you in judgment and receiving their final and eternal judgment. Lord, make me an agent to be a blessing to these people. Peter is saying, as you have a future focus, your prayer life will sharpen as you see where these things are ending. And you will then, you will then think creatively about how to sustain yourself through this time as you pray to the Lord and say, listen, Lord, on my own, I might cave. I might compromise. I might do the very thing that they're asking me to do. And actually, I have very little confidence in my flesh. But Lord, as I think about this ending, as I think about this final judgment, Lord, give me the strength to persevere and make me an agent, a, a witness to this final judgment and the hope I found in Christ. Future focus. This is what Peter wants us to manifest, the, this, this way of thinking that we have to take on if we're going to walk through this very, very complicated world in which we're presented with numerous ideas to compromise or to face suffering. Peter's saying, if you're going to sell for well, You've always got to stay armed. You've always got to be future-focused. He concludes with this uh, series of commands where he essentially says you need to be others-oriented. We see it in verses 8 through 10. Peter says, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Peter is saying that you need to manifest this other-oriented oriented love and care and concern and instinct for those who are around you, who are next to you, who are sitting by your side right now. And Peter says, to do this well, to truly love someone else well, means there's going to be seasons where you rub up against one another. 
where there's conflict, where there's friction, where you hurt each other. My goodness, he even uses the word sin. You wrong each other. That's to be expected. We're sinners. But Peter says to strive for and look hard to the type of love that can cover a multitude of sins. When someone who's been going through a rough season in life responds nasty to you through email, is mean to you, Peter says dig deep in the type of love that will allow that cycle of evil not to be responded to with an evil email back or a defensive exchange which just creates more defensiveness and the cycle of evil continues on. Draw upon yourself in Christ the power to act in love and to stop these evil cycles, to overlook these offenses. Now, I must say, this is a tough time to hear a verse like this. Spotlight, Boston Globe, the movie that, about the Catholic abuse scandal, that was this verse that was sometimes quoted by higher powers to hide dark and heinous sin. Peter in no way is suggesting that. In fact, Peter would go way out of his way to say that it's better that these sins be exposed and dealt with properly. In fact, Peter himself, who, who, who himself had experiences of lacking loyalty to Christ, turning from Christ, had to be restored publicly in the face of these particular sins. Peter's saying, don't just pretend like these things are no big deal and sweep things under the rug, but I think you know, on the scale of how sins work, there are some sins that just aren't that big of a deal. Someone having a bad day, someone forgetting to pay you back for lunch when she promised. There's a type of love that can cover these wrongs. And that's what Peter's saying. And he's saying that you should act in love this way to preserve unity within the church, to, to continue to move forward as, as one body for Christ. This is what Peter calls the church to, this type of love. You have received a new birth in Christ. You're all a bunch of displaced people trying to figure out how to wander as aliens and sojourners in this land that used to feel like home. And at the end of the day, you can't turn in on each other in hate. You must dig deep from the love of Christ so that you can exhibit love to others, even the type of love that might cover a multitude of sin. But it's not just that you're to love. He actually is absolutely clear that our other-oriented nature needs to get practical, and that is that we need to become people who show hospitality. And some of you are good at showing hospitality, but he says you need to do it without grumbling. That probably means when you're doing dishes afterwards and you feel like those ungrateful people, <laughs> we put on a great spread for them and they left us with the mess and now they're out of here. Peter says this is a practical outworking of loyalty to Christ, that you exhibit hospitality one to another. This is a way for you to judge your walk with Christ. How loyal are you to Christ? How hospitable are you? How much do you spend time with people? It doesn't have to necessarily be in your house. It could be in a park. It could be out for coffee. How much are you willing to use your time for the good of the other? To say, I was welcomed into God's presence through Jesus Christ. He brokered a deal. And now I came in and the full spread of the tables before me. My goodness. I just want you to get a taste of that. I want you to enjoy. I want you to enjoy a meal with me, a cup of coffee with me. <laughs> I want you to know that you are loved in Christ. This is a tangible mark of being others-oriented. It might surprise you that in the Christian tradition, this has been taken with the utmost seriousness. From the 2nd century to roughly the 16th century, the church was known for their commitment to hospitality. If you were traveling from North Africa to Scotland to modern-day Iraq to Spain, if you were traveling anywhere in that particular window, as you traveled and you set out on your journey, you were scanning the horizon day and night for one thing. And do you know what it was? 
You were looking for a church. You were hoping for something like a monastery because you knew one thing, whether you were a believer or not, you knew one thing, that is, is if you saw that cross on a building, there would be a warm bed. There would be safety. There would be welcome. There'd be protection from danger. There was no hotels, no hostels. This is what the church was known for. Again, I'm not exaggerating. Second century to 16th century, the church's hospitality was, was paramount to many people's first experiences to, of Christ and their experience to continuing in, in their loyalty to Christ. There are all kinds of manuals and codes, actually, written as to how this uh, hospitality is to be exhibited. Benedict, the great uh, Benedict, who writes a rule for some of these monasteries in the 6th century, chapter 53, reads this way. Listen to this. He writes this. All guests who present themselves are to be welcomed as Christ. For Jesus himself will say to us on that day, I was a stranger and you welcomed me in. Once a guest's, once a guest's arrival has been announced, the superior, the brothers and sisters, are to meet with him with all the curiosity of love. The abbot should pour water on the hands of the guest, and the abbot with the entire community shall wash their feet. Great care and concern are to be shown in receiving poor people and pilgrims, because in receiving them, Christ is received. This is what the church was known for. The hospitality, not just a nice spread of food, but what does he say here? This sort of holy curiosity, this welcome, this incredible welcome that comes, receiving especially not just the rich who can invite you back to their dinner parties, but receiving the poor who have nothing to give and offer back to you. This is the hospitality that the church was known for. And Peter's actually saying, and I should, should say clearly, he's saying that this is something you should show not just to the stranger out there, but also to one another. That's his focus here. It's likely that he's writing to a bunch of house churches where someone every week had to clean up their house, prepare for people to come over as they came over to this house and, and, and figured out what it looked like to mature and follow after Christ in their house. And Peter is saying, this is a mark of love, this mark of hospitality. Hospitality is not about showing off. It's not about impressing. It's about saying, I was received and welcomed in Christ, and I want you to feel this way. And this is why, as a church, I'll never, ever make complaints about the cost of ridiculous amounts of snacks and coffee. We didn't intend to have a lot of snacks. There was an event that had a lot of leftovers. But it fits nicely with a sermon. We're trying to be hospitable. But this is part of what it means, though, that people are welcomed at the door with a hello. And they're reminded that they belong, that there's, their, their creator wants relationship with them, wants it, so, wants it so bad, he sent Christ to have them, that there's coffee available, that people worked hard so that you can have that, so that you feel welcome and in some senses at home. This is tied to what it means to be others-oriented, this motivation, this drive through love. I could go on and on, but let me just say, if you want to mature in your faith, if you want a real challenge to put in front of you, coming out of COVID, there are all kinds of people that would love, love, love to share a meal at your table. And they would love for someone to sit across from them and with a holy curiosity, ask them what God is doing in their life and explore and find how God's image pops out of this individual. Let me assure you, there are numerous people who have told me that the worst thing about the pandemic and the worst thing especially about being single during the pandemic was eating alone. As we come out of the other side of this thing, we must be people known for hospitality, especially to one another, but to anyone who comes to the doors. That means that sometimes we're not going to get to eat with the old friends that we want to continue to have dinner parties with because we want to be with someone new. 
because we want to remind them that Christ has welcomed us, and we want a chance to actually welcome Christ himself in the face of the person who's in front of us, others-oriented. This is what Peter calls for. The church has always been known for this. This There's something we cannot neglect. Peter ends his time. I'm sorry, I've had quite the week, but I hope Peter's instructions to you make some sense this morning. Peter ends his time by saying, this other's orientation needs to go all the way down to the level of service. For some, that includes speaking and teaching, teaching whether that's in small group settings and when you visit someone in the hospital or visit them at their home or in a small group or preaching. Whatever the gift is, you are to use this to be a blessing to others, not for your own glory, not the building up of your own status. And those gifts include things like serving, which by and large, I've never met someone who says, I have this spiritual gift of making coffee, but my goodness, there are people in this church who do it every week and make sure there is hot coffee so that people have an inclination to stay around and be known. Whatever you do, Assume that this is some sort of stewardship of God's grace that has been given to you. He bestowed grace to you. Now it's your duty and your delight to extend that grace to others, whatever it might be, whether it's picking up trash on the floor or it's helping with the kids down the hall. All of these things you're to do as one who is a steward of grace received. Now grace is extended. Let me wrap it up this way. Um, Peter has been saying to us this, that you have a new life in Christ. And as you live out this new life in Christ, your life in the old world is beginning to collide. Our situation is not the exact same, but it has some similar overlaps. And Peter's instructions to us is this, that you're going to have to suffer well. But if you're going to suffer well out of right loyalty to Christ, you must always arm yourself, be future-focused, and be others-oriented. For in so doing, you will mimic and model and pattern and live out the life of Christ. Our Lord Jesus, who was sent from heaven with all the pleasures, comfort, and safety and security of heaven, was sent from heaven. And for you, for you in a mysterious way as an individual, with your name and with your looks, with you in mind in a very serious way, gave up his life so that you could be welcomed home. All of his life was given for others. And in this, his heavenly Father was glorified. And so this morning, Jesus welcomes you. If you've been far from the church, come back. Come back, participate in what God is doing in the life, maybe in this church, maybe in another. He offers those of you who've grown cynical and frustrated with the church to exhibit the type of love that can cover a multitude of sins, that can push forward and live sacrificially. This is what he offers to us today. And he challenges us to be the body of Christ one to another, that people might get to heaven and they might see Jesus and they say, my goodness, the welcome he gave me, it reminded me of that one meal we had. That was just a small taste. But you remember when that person invited us at that low point of our life? I thought I saw a picture of Christ. And Christ might say to you, thank you for welcoming me at the table in the face of the poor who sat in front of you. In welcoming them, you welcomed me. This is what Peter is calling us to be, the body of Christ to one another and to receive Christ in one another. Let me pray. Our Father, we thank you for Peter's words to us. We ask, Father, that you would make us a community that more clearly exhibits the love of Christ one to another and who tastes and experience the love of Christ in one another. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Christ Church Toronto podcast. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at ChristChurchToronto.ca or email us at info at ChristChurchToronto.ca.